Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletel from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from New York is Scott Young. Scott is Principal Advisor and Head of Private Sector for Behavioral Insights Team Americas. And today we're going to be talking about taking a behavioral approach when it comes to compliance. Um, Scott, thanks for joining us. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm really intrigued. Uh, I believe that we need much more of a behavioral approach when it comes to compliance, given how we're really in the business of influencing people. Now, your organization developed what it calls the EAST framework, which stands for Easy, Attractive, Social, and Timely. I'm going to want you to take us through each of the initials in a moment, but can you tell us first a bit about why you think this behavioral approach would apply to compliance? Sure. Uh, well, first off, thank you, Adam. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. And, you know, I think you, you really put it quite well, which is, you know, ultimately compliance is, is about humans and, and about influencing people and, and help hopefully steering them in the right direction in their actions. So I think anything that can give us a, a deeper level of understanding about how people make decisions can be beneficial and can be factored in to help us, you know, do our jobs that much more effectively. And, you know, the EAST framework you mentioned is really just a simple way of distilling some of the key concepts that come from a field called behavioral science. And for those who aren't familiar with that, this is a field that's emerged in the past 15 years or so, and it's become more popularized um, through work from people like Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow is the book there. It's, it's a great one. Um, people may have heard of the book Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein as well. And you know what behavioral science really teaches us, if I can summarize it, is it kind of gives us a broader way of thinking about human behavior. You know, the traditional way that we all learned in, in high school and economics classes is, you know, a very fully rational model, you know, of people weighing benefits versus costs, you know, with full information and making decisions based on that. And, you know, what we find and what behavioral science tells us is that's part of the story, of course. It, what it's really emphasizing is that there's also another dimension to, to the way people make decisions. And a lot of it is um, what we call system one thinking, which is very automatic. It's very influenced by our environment, sometimes by our emotions and by the context that we're in. And it's really the way that we navigate through life. Um, you know, if we had to stop and think about every decision we made through a day, it would be paralyzing. So, you know, what we do is we use, uh, I think of these, some people call them biases or heuristics. I think of them as shortcuts um, that help us navigate and, and what they end up influencing a great deal of what we actually do in, in the course of our lives and the decisions that we make. And, and ultimately, that, that's very applicable in a compliance context as well, in terms of um, whether people will indeed follow um, suggestions um, or follow the rules, so to speak, or, or whether they'll perhaps deviate from them. So much of our decision making is far from rational. It's much more automatic. So let's talk about the EAST framework. Um, and the first word of the EAST is easy. Uh, 
easy is obviously a better thing in, in general, <laughs> but I imagine there's something more subtle to it. What do you mean by easy in this context? Well, you know, as you mentioned, um, easy is indeed the, the number one mantra, you know, from right from Richard Thaler, one of the pioneers in the field, you know, if you want somebody to do something, make it easy. And, you know, while that sounds intuitive and obvious, I, I think the reality is um, sometimes we, we think that more is better, right? That, you know, if we give people more information, if we give people more reasons um, that's more likely to persuade them and ultimately lead to action, kind of a very, you know, traditional model of decision making, you know, but if we really study human behavior, what we do find is that, um, you know, again, these decisions are made very intuitively and, and often the easy, the path of least resistance is the path that people follow. So, you know, one of the, the easy, easy or most obvious examples of this is the idea of defaults and time and time again what you find is if you change the default you change what people actually do for example if you have to opt in to retirement savings you know you tend to find a small percentage of people actually take the step to do it if you have to opt out of retirement savings in other words if it automatically happens unless you act to stop it, then you know a, a lot more people do it. And in fact, Richard Thaler, who I referred to, you know, a lot of his pioneering work was exactly in that. How do we get people to save for retirement? And defaults, which are a very obvious tool and obvious answer, tend to be an extremely strong one. You know, if people have to actively take action to do the wrong thing. They're much more likely to do the right thing. Um, I would say another dimension of easy, and perhaps also a somewhat obvious one, is um, reducing complexity. Um, and, and again, often we have the implicit assumption that you know we give people more information, put more in front of them, that 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 will give them, you know, that will persuade them and lead to action. But often we find the opposite that if we can remove steps in a process, people are that much more likely to follow that process. I'd also mention that there are some subtleties around this, for example. Um, my own background, for example, is in survey research. And you know, what you find is, of course, shorter the survey, the more likely people are to, to complete it, but also giving people a sense of progress you know, you're 30% of the way through, you're 60% of the way through, et cetera, is extremely powerful as well. Well, and to that end of, of keeping things short and also letting people know the progress is there's a reason we do podcasts that are 10 to 15 minutes long. So now attractive is the A and how do we make compliance attractive? It's not exactly what people get excited to see. Yeah. Personally, I think attractive might be the maybe the least intuitive of the descriptors, um, but I guess East sounded better than than EFST. Um, I think attractive, I think you could use the synonym of making something fun um, or engaging, perhaps. Um, 
you know, you probably heard about game, many of listeners probably heard about gamification. Software companies of all kinds, from Candy Crush to others, you know, use tools of this nature to try to engage people and keep them engaged in processes. Now here, I'm not saying we replicate that, but I think there are ways to borrow from that to make things a little fun. Um, perhaps contests showing people how well they're doing relative to others is another tool that can sometimes be really helpful in, in um, keeping people engaged. I think another dimension of attractive or another synonym might be the word salient as well. In other words, making things visible to people. So I think of attractive kind of as a synonym for how do we make it a little bit fun? How do we make it very visible and salient to people as well? So things aren't getting out, out of sight and out of mind. Let's talk about the S, which is social. Tell us what social means in the compliance context. Sure. Well, one very strong tenet of behavioral science is, is frankly that you know, one of the strong influences on our behavior is what other people are doing. Um, that's one of those shortcuts or heuristics that we use it just as an, an, a human nature. You know, you look to see which restaurants are busy and that's the restaurant you go into. I think a lot of compliance programs that we've seen really appeal to people very directly as individuals and solely as individuals. And I think that misses an opportunity and a dimension, which is to tap into the power of the group. You know, in most business situations, organizational contexts, folks are part of a team or a group. And, you know, appealing to people to do things as a group um, or showing how their group is doing relative to the progress of other groups can be really powerful. And we've seen that um, in efforts that may fall in, in other areas outside compliance. So again, I think there's a lot of opportunities to add this dimension to this social dimension and perhaps leverage what we call social norms in compliance work. And, and that's intriguing. I, you know, there's a lot of compliance people through the years who've been say reporting on training results by department and giving that to the managers of departments and it triggers their sort of competitive instincts with each other. But taking that broader so that different groups get to see it as a whole uh, may be much more motivating as well. So finally, the last letter of East is T, which is timely. And timely is in many ways the absolute holy grail for compliance. Nothing would be better than having controls and reminders pop up the instant there's a chance for someone to do the wrong thing. How do we get there? Well, it, it's certainly easier said than done. Um, you know, but you mentioned training um, and, and, you know, the real problem with much of training, unfortunately, is that it's not, you know, it's distant from the moment of decision and the moment of action, right? So, you know, people sit in a training class and they nod and they agree and, and so forth. But then weeks later, when they're faced with a specific issue or decision, um, it's not salient. Um, Again, I think we can all agree that timely reminders are important, but there is a, a, an art to doing it um, because if we overwhelm people and we give them too much, um, they'll tend to tune it out and it will lose its impact. So there's a question of really you know, doing the right amount and also in some cases refreshing it. You know, We've had programs where we may have what we would call an intervention but we need to design to update that intervention every three months in you know, another visual approach, another copy approach or something of that nature to keep it fresh so it doesn't become part of the wallpaper. I think the answer to, you know, how do we do it at the right time is really rooted in what 
we do um, call ethnographic research or observational research, really looking closely at people's processes, you know, not so much directly asking them questions about what they think or what they want, but really trying to dive deep into the process by which they're going that they're going through, whether it's a digital process or something else in in an office environment and trying to find the right moments of opportunity. You know, when, when is the moment that we need that quick reminder? And, you know, sometimes that's obvious, but sometimes it may be a little bit less obvious. You know, when do they need the reassurance? Um, when do they need, you know, when are they two thirds of the way done and need a little boost and positive reinforcement to help get them over the finish line, so to speak? When are moments of potential confusion? You know, and some of this we can find by mining data on, on what's working and what isn't working. But again, often it's really about observing people and learning from that observation and then choosing carefully our, our moments of intervention. You know, whether that's a digital reminder on someone's phone, whether that's a physical reminder in their, you know, on their computer, in their environment. Um, you know, but, but I think the key is most of the time there, we're not, you know, we're not giving them a lecture as to why. We're just giving them a quick reminder to do it. <laughs> um, because often what's really going on here is the intent, to, what we call the intent to action gap. You know, so much energy we spend trying to persuade people because we assume if they're not doing something, it's because they don't want to do it. But I think what we often find is that intent exists, at least for the vast majority of people, they'd like to do the right thing, but complexity and confusion and just everyday life gets in the way. And again, that's where we need the reminders. And often it's just often a little positive reinforcement, the little smile (laughs) doesn't have to be financial just a little something um, that reinforces a positive feeling around doing the action and gets them that much more likely the next time around. So we think a lot about triggers and rewards and how do we reinforce positive actions that way. Well, Scott, thank you for sharing these insights uh, with us into how to think much more behaviorally about compliance. Uh, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turltaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.